series called Unhelpful. And sort of the premise of the series is, is that sometimes people think that when you're, when you're going through something, when you're experiencing a grief, a trauma, a pain, a loss, when you're trying to process, when you're trying to make decisions, when your faith is unraveling all around you and you're trying to sort it out, often people come to you and they have the best idea and it comes out of their mouth and it is probably the most unhelpful thing that could ever be said. Anybody been in that situation before where you're like, like, can we just rewind that and you take all that back? Um, because that's just, and I, you know, to be honest, I've been on the other end of that. I've, I have been at a spot where I had no idea what to say, so I said the dumbest thing that could possibly come to my mind, and it was what had been taught, it was deeply embedded, it was what I'd been trained to say, but when it came out, I realized, well, that actually doesn't help. It actually just hurts. And today I want to take a look at uh, a phrase that comes up sometimes that you hear people say, and I like to call it, it's sort of like Jesus take the wheel theology is, is really what it is, and it's this phrase that goes like this, let go and let God. How many of you have ever been let go and let Godded before? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. And how many of you ever let go and let God and it didn't go very well? Yeah, keep, keep your hands on the wheel, all right? And, and so what I want to do today, it's, it's built on, so I want to sort of unpack what this is, this let go and let God, because on the surface, it sounds like it could be really spiritual. Like it could be, and this is, this, this is actually great faith, right? This person is willing to just take their hands off of everything and let God run the show. They're just turning it all over to God. But this also ends up becoming really complicated because I know lots and lots of people who have gone to churches in their life and they were told, all you need to do, no matter what you're struggling with, whether it's depression or whether it's addiction or whether it's grief, whatever you're struggling with, you just need to come down front at the end of church and kneel at the altar and you need to pray and you need to give it to God. And I know lots and lots of people who have been through that process and they prayed and they felt good for a couple minutes and then they go back and they leave and they go back to life. It, it all just keeps, comes rushing back. And then it's like, well, I don't have enough faith. I didn't have enough faith to let go and let God. I didn't have enough faith to turn this over to Jesus. Is that really what's going on? Is that really what it's all about? And let go, let God is kind of built on an assumption that if you let go, and just trust God that every time God will intervene and that God will sort of swoop in and bippity-boppity-boo, whatever the situation, that's a theological term. I didn't know if you knew that. Disney borrowed it. Uh, that, that God would swoop in and bippity-boppity-boo the situation and then whatever's going on, whatever the problems are, they would just magically evaporate. Whatever you're carrying would just magically leave you and the world will be all sunshine and roses and everything will just be perfect and happy and shiny and bright. If you just have enough faith to let go, and let God. After all, it does say in the Bible, be still and know that I am God. Right? Anybody ever been struggling and somebody throws that passage at you? Unhelpful. Right? Unhelpful. And so I was really struggling this week with how to present this because there is sort of um, an exercise of like theological contrast I wanted to do between two characters in the, in the Bible, and I thought, that could be boring for everybody, but then I decided, I don't know what else to do, so we're going to do that, <laughs> and we're going to try to make it not boring, but here's what I want to do. I want to show you two different examples, because what people often are sold is this bill of goods that says the Bible just sort of fell out of the sky, and everything in it agrees with everything else in it, and so every page you turn on, you will find the Bible saying the exact same thing. That really works until you actually start reading the Bible. And when you actually start reading the Bible, what you'll realize is that this is not 
a monologue, it is a dialogue. And it is a dialogue, it is a conversation that was created over thousands of years where our spiritual ancestors wrote down their experiences, their assumptions, their beliefs, and then later other ancestors came along knowing their texts and wrote the opposite as a way to argue and push back and say, maybe our faith is growing and changing, maybe we're evolving, maybe that's okay, maybe that's the point. And I think in the Bible, there are lots of examples of this argument, this view, this belief, this practice, then being countered and challenged by something else. And I wanna use two figures, two characters from the stories of the gospels that are probably pretty well known. How many of you have ever heard of Jesus? Okay, if not, he's great. How many of you have ever heard of a guy named John the Baptizer? Or John the Baptist, not to be confused with like John the Presbyterian. Right, John, John the Immerser is actually what it would be. And, and so I, I want to just spend some time contrasting their two messages. Because growing up, it was just sort of presented that John started a thing and he, he led to Jesus and Jesus kept doing the thing John was doing. And I actually don't think that's what happened. And so let me give you the context for the Gospels real quick because I think it's important to know what was going on. So where Jesus and John lived and what you might call Israel, you might call it Judah, you might call it Judea, depending on the time frame, it had been under the oppression of successive world empires forever. The story begins in Egypt uh, and the people, the Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians. And then after they are liberated from enslavery, enslavement, they go and they create their own kind of communities. And one of those communities in the north and it called Israel gets destroyed by the Assyrians. And then later, the south gets exiled, which means the Babylonians came in and they beat them. They tore down the temple and they deported the best of the best to Babylon where they would be indoctrinated with Babylonian culture. And then under the Persian empire, they get to come home and rebuild their temple, but they're still under the oppression of an empire. And then after Persia, there's the Greeks. And then after the Greeks, there's this brief 100 years-ish of freedom, where they take back their temple. It's a festival known as Hanukkah, celebrates this. And they, they lived in freedom for about 100 years, but then, in the year 63 BCE, a Roman general named Pompey rode into Jerusalem, and in the year 63, it began the Roman occupation and oppression of the Jewish people. That is not a context I was ever given for the Bible. I, I was raised in a holler in Eastern Kentucky. And if you'd ask me as a 10 year old, where did the story of Jesus take place? It might as well have been up our holler in our context. Does that make sense? Does anybody else have that too? Like sort of like Jesus sort of is just a, almost a two dimensional figure where he just sort of exists, but we don't really know much about him. And what you find when you actually engage the context of the story is Jesus was quite three dimensional. And, and Jesus was actually engaging and responding to and acting out of a context that shaped his message, that shaped his beliefs, that shaped who he was and how he showed up in the world. And so that backdrop, Roman occupation and oppression, that's the backdrop for the gospel stories. And, and I, I said this on social media and there were some people who really pushed back, but I think this is true. If you actually want to understand the, the question the Gospels are trying to grapple with, it's not how do we go to heaven when we die. The question the Gospels are grappling with is what do we do about Rome? 
Because that's the question that first century Jewish people in what we would call today Israel-Palestine, that's what they were wrestling with. What do we do about the Roman occupiers and oppressors? They're keeping us from worshiping God in the fullness of the way we want to. They are defiling our land. They are brutalizing and crucifying and killing us. They are taking all of our resources and funding a military global superpower. Hasn't the world changed? They're taking all of our resources and they're funding a military global superpower with it. We've got to do something about Rome. And there were lots and lots of people who had opinions. You had groups of people who, like people who ran the temple establishment, the Sadducees, who chose sort of the path of collaboration. Like if we work with Rome, it'll go well for us. You had other groups who chose the path of like, withdrawal. You had other groups who said, well, let's just grab swords and start killing Romans. You had other groups who offered nonviolent resistance. But that is the question. And if we can begin to read the Gospels through that lens, welcome to my New Testament class. If we can begin to read the Gospels through that lens, it unlocks the story of Jesus in a way that I've never had been able to see it and experience it unlocked for me before. And so I want to give you two contrasting views, one from John the Baptist, and then we'll look at Jesus. And if I could sum John the Baptist's view up in just a sentence, it would be this. Here's what's going to happen. God will intervene in the future. That's how we're going to get rid of the Romans. God will intervene in the future. And we know this sort of approach in our world, right? There are so many problems. There are so many injustices. How often do we say, well, how long is this going to go on? How many times, how many buffaloes do we have to experience? How long until the world is made right? How long until the oppressors are held accountable for what they're doing to the oppressed? How, how long before the world that is, re, the people who are suffering in this world, how long before they are given justice? How long until there's equity in the world? How long? What, what can we do? And John would say, well, there's coming a day. Someday. We don't know when, but it's always going to be soon, right? I mean, that's, this is very much in sort of the tradition I grew up in, which was all about Jesus coming back. Well, when does Jesus come back? We don't know, but it's going to be soon. It's been soon for a very long time. We don't know when, but soon God's going to intervene. God's going to act definitively. God's going to do something in history. Our job is to be patient. Our job is to live right. Maybe be judgmental of the people who aren't because they're holding this whole thing up. And our job is to just watch and pray and wait, and God will eventually save the day. Listen to how we're introduced to John in the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark. Mark 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son, happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. A voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. So Mark begins by saying, I want to tell you a story, but to tell you the story, to understand what this first person we're going to meet John's going to do, you have to understand Isaiah. And Isaiah is an interesting text. So how many of you have ever read the book of Isaiah before? Or parts of it? Or you know it exists. Right? So if you come to the Bible and you go to the, the table of contents, it'll just say Isaiah. But what scholars recognize is there's actually two, maybe three different authors behind, or three different eras behind that book and lots of authors. So one they call first Isaiah is the first 39 chapters, and it represents the time of Assyria, when Assyria was threatening the people of Judah. 
Um, it's where the famous text comes from, where um, Matthew sort of rips it off and, and does a thing with it, where the virgin, it doesn't say virgin, it says young woman will conceive, right? Um, that whole part of, I, that's Isaiah, first Isaiah. That's where they're dealing with Assyria and the threat of Assyria. Then we come to second Isaiah. The text Mark quotes is from second Isaiah. In second Isaiah, most scholars locate to the sixth century which would have been the 500s, which is something I have to look up every time I'm dealing with a century. It would have just been helpful if it could have just been one and it's the one. Right? It would have been helpful if, if you know anybody who has the power to do that, please. But 500s, and it represents the time of exile. It represents the time when the Babylonians came in and defeated and deported. The temple was burned to the ground. And in the ancient world, when you lost a battle, especially when the temple's destroyed, it wasn't just that you got beaten. Because what was happening in the physical realm was, being, was a mirror of something happening in the unseen realm. And so if you lose and your temple is destroyed, your God has gotten defeated. And so the people are gone. How can we sing the songs of God in a foreign land? That's a, they're asking that. That's not just poetry. Our God lives in these boundaries. These other gods live in these boundaries. These gods beat our God and took us over here. How do we sing this God's songs over here? And they began to dream about a time of return, a time when they would be able to go home and rebuild their temple and sing the songs of Zion in Zion again. And Isaiah 40, which Mark references, is a scripture about that moment. That we're go the desert stands between us and home, and God is going to make a way through the desert, and we are going to return home. God is preparing the road back. So whatever John is doing, it's about the exodus. I mean, it's about the exile. Maybe a little the exodus, but mainly the exile. It's about coming home. It's about returning from exile. And so then John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized, literally uh, ritually washed, dunked um, is a way to put it, to show they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. Here's what John's doing. Okay, we want God to act. We want God to do a thing. Well, first, we're going to reenact our return from exile. Let's go out to the desert, and then we're going to return through the Jordan River, just like they did when they came back from exile. And we're going to reenact it. And maybe as we reenact it, and maybe as we ritually wash ourselves, and maybe as we say to God, we are sorry for our sins, and the sins that got them in trouble in the exile was injustice. We are sorry for the injustice. We are sorry that we oppressed our workers. We are sorry that we beat one another. We are sorry. We are so, we, we, and it's not just sorry. It's not just guilt, right? Repentance is to change your mind. We're changing our thinking. We're changing our lives. We, we want to live differently. So come back and get rid of the Romans so we can do that. And so John has them out in the desert being baptized as a way of doing that. Then Matthew comes along and gives us more of John's message. Y'all ready for this? Here's, and first, we're also told by Mark that John wore camel hair, which you can't do after Labor Day either. <laughs> so if you're doing it, do it now. And he ate locusts and wild honey and was just a pleasant guy to be around at a dinner party. Here's what Matthew says. 
that he's, John's attracting a crowd. Many Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees ran the temple. And by the way, what John is doing in the desert should have been happening at the temple. So he's, he's really pushing boundaries. They came to be baptized by John. Yes, sign us up. We want God to come back to us. We want God to return and get rid of the Romans. And he said to them, you children of snakes. If you were to take a training in like nonviolent communication, they would begin with, don't call people children of snakes. That's just going to set the conversation up for disaster. But John didn't take that training. You children of snakes, who warned you to escape from the angry judgment coming soon? Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And don't even think about saying to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. I baptize with water those of you who have changed your hearts and lives. The one who is coming after me is stronger than I am. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The shovel he uses to sift the wheat from the husks is in his hand. He will clean out the threshing area and bring the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the husks with a fire that can't be put out. Nice. Right? I mean, uh, John's kind of a street preacher here. And here's what John's message is. There is a moment, you better get ready. And you better make sure you've repented. And you better make sure that you've done the whole exile return reenactment. Because God is coming back. And when God, because God's been gone. The temple was destroyed and God left. God's coming back. And when God comes back, God's not just going to get the Romans. God's going to get anybody who hasn't done the right thing. And when God comes back, there's going to be fire and destruction and the, the axe is at the root of the tree and God is going to clean house. I, I grew up, by the way, hearing those sermons about Jesus coming back. Right? You better get it right now because when Jesus comes back, whew, he's not going to be so nice this time. And that's sort of John's message. What are we going to do? We're going to go out to the desert. We're going to try to live right. But ultimately, we're going to wait for God to even the score. God's going to inter intervene, and God's going to do what only God can do, and we're just going to get to benefit from it. If you ask John, what do we do about Rome? You know what John would have said? Let go and let God. We don't have to be violent. We don't have to kill our enemies. Let God do it. Anybody seen that, that church bulletin blooper was like, don't let worry kill you, let the church help? Like, that, that's sort of John's theology here. You don't have to get your hands dirty. God will get God's hands dirty. You don't have to, you can't solve this. We can't get rid of it. We can't do anything. Look at Rome. They're going to do all the stuff I just said to us if we try, but someday God will come and get them. We just have to take our hands off and let God do what God does. And at some point, Jesus comes and is baptized by John. And it seems like Jesus, in the beginning, is connected, connects with John's message. But then something happens. John gets arrested. And after John's arrest, Jesus begins preaching, and he begins preaching a slightly different message. His message goes something like this. The kingdom isn't coming in the future. The kingdom is already here. The kingdom isn't coming tomorrow in a week, in a month, in 15 years. The kingdom of God is already, the future is already here. Now our job 
isn't to sit and wait, but our job is to actively participate in the kingdom that God is bringing right here and right now. If we were to sum this up in a sentence, it would be something like, Jesus invites us to collaboration in the present. If John is saying, intervention in the future, let go, let God, Jesus is saying, do not take your hands off of the wheel. Maybe turn with the skid, but do not take your hands off the wheel. And how does Jesus do that? Think about the actual ministry and program, the stuff that the creeds left out, like the important stuff that actually matters, that Jesus comes and he feeds people, that he heals people, that, that people who are oppressed are liberated, and that all of that is somehow for Jesus celebrating that God's kingdom is already here. How do you know God's kingdom is here? Well, I once was blind, but now I see. How do you know God's kingdom is here? Because I was hungry and I'm full. How do you know God's kingdom is here? Because I was oppressed under the weight of a system that was killing me. And people came around me and helped liberate me from the oppression that I was experiencing in my life. How do you know the kingdom is here? Well, I, be, because I've tasted and seen. And once you've tasted, you can't untaste. And what you've seen, you can't unsee. Once you know in your bones, you cannot unknow. Thank you. And, and Jesus is announcing that. He's essentially saying, let's create pockets. You know that future everybody longs for when God does the thing that makes the world better? Let's create pockets where we begin to live now as if that were already true. So maybe we can't top down change the world, but let's create pockets where men and women sit at the table equally. We can't change the world, but let's create pockets where rich and the poor sit at the same table and eat the same food. Let, we can't change everything, but let's create pockets where the enslaved and the free are together. And actually, if any of the free people are owning the enslaved people, you can't own your brother or sister or sibling in Christ, so you should set them free and eat at the table as equals. Like, this movement is about this radical, let's create pockets of that. And then if it begins to spread and catches on, then maybe the whole world could be changed. I actually think that was what Christianity was supposed to be. And my goodness, we have messed it up. But I think that's what Jesus was getting at. And when this message of Jesus, when what he's doing gets back to John in prison, John is concerned. Listen to Matthew 11. When John heard in prison about the things Jesus was doing, he sent word by his disciples to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Jesus, do you remember the sermon I gave where I was like, the one who's coming after me has a pitchfork and an axe and a commitment to make people bleed? Where's that guy? Where's the guy who's getting rid of the Romans? Where's the guy who's, who's paying back our enemies for what they've done to us? Are you the one? Because if you're the one, I would have thought you would have like broken me out of here by now. I was waiting on a cake with a file in it. Like how, 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 how am I not out of here yet? And notice what Jesus says. Go to John's disciples. Go tell John what you hear and see. Here's what he's saying. Go bear witness. You've tasted and seen. You've experienced. Now just go tell John what you've experienced. Those who are blind are able to see. Those who are crippled are walking. People with skin diseases are cleansed. Those who are deaf now hear. Those who are dead are raised up. The poor have good news proclaimed to them. Happy are those who don't stumble and fall because of me. Here's what he says. Go tell John this is what's happening. And that maybe, and he goes on to say John's a great guy. He does go on to say that. John's a great guy. Best, best person ever. But maybe John was wrong. Maybe John's program misunderstood what God is like. 
and pushed off to the future something that should be happening today. Maybe, maybe Jesus is doing something so radically different that John has to go, that's not what I thought we signed up for. Because you were supposed to bring intervention and you're supposed to announce intervention in the future and you're, you're announcing collaboration in the present. So all of that, which if nothing else, I just enjoyed being able to share it. Here's what I think about let go and let God. I, I think that it misunderstands God and it misunderstands the invitation of the moment we live in right here, right now. I think Christians have been pushing off into the future realities that could already be in our present as an excuse, an excuse often to build institutions that get richer and richer and richer at the expense of the people who have none to give, where they try to preserve power instead of disseminate power, where they choose to keep people at a level instead of raising everyone up. So a few thoughts. First, here's the truth. Everybody is collaborating with something. When Vanilla Ice challenged us to stop, collaborate, and listen, we already were. Because it is impossible for human beings not to be involved in something. You're collaborating with something in your life you, me, all of us, and what do I mean by collaborating? We're, we're working to make a reality exist, right? And so think about like the way we spend our money, how we choose to show up in the world, who we exclude, how we vote. We're in the process always of collaboration with something or someone. So we just need to recognize that because when we recognize that, then we can start asking questions about who am I collaborating with? I think there are large scores of Christians who are waiting for something in the future and they're collaborating with oppression in the present. Because for everybody who pushes back and says, no, Jesus was bringing a spiritual kingdom, I don't think Rome executed people for spiritual kingdoms. I think Rome executed people for saying, there's a better way to run the world, let me show you. And I think that's what Jesus was doing. And so I think for, for thousands of years now, Christians have been kicking the can down the road instead of actually dealing with the context in which we find ourselves where people are struggling and they're hurting and the system is crushing more people than it's elevating. So we're all collaborating with something. We just need to be able to start naming what that is. And if when we start connecting the dots, we don't like what our collaboration is doing in the world, then we have options. We have options. We don't have to spend our money the same way. We don't have to show up in the world the same way. We don't have to support the same politicians. We don't have to exclude people. We can actually do this differently. Second, I don't think God wants us to check out. I think God's dream is that we would actually engage. I think if, the, you know, if, if there was ever sort of, so when we, I did a wedding um, in Hawaii back in March. It was the greatest gig that I've ever been given in my life. The couple were so sweet and they were like, we can't believe you're doing this. And I was like, you did say Hawaii, right? <laughs> And so the first day we were there, my wife and I, we couldn't get a car at the airport. So we went to our place, we're staying, and then the next day we went to get a car. And we're riding with this guy in a Prius. And he's a really interesting cat, really nice. Um, but he did this thing where he didn't use his hands when he drove a lot. Like, and his seat was in the back seat. So like, 
I'm not a small person. So like my wife and I, we're in a Prius, we're in the back, we're like this, and he's talking to us about all the things we should do on the island, and he has, he's like pulling his phone up because he's also a videographer, and he's showing us videos of this volcano, and he's leaning back, and he's driving with his knees, and I'm like, what is protocol here? <laughs> like, is it, is, it, is it too much to say, hey, love the photos? <laughs> Could you put one hand on the wheel? <laughs> Because it seems like when you take both hands off the wheel, we start going into the other lane, and there seems to be someone else there. And I just like to imagine, like, when we're taking our hands off the wheel so Jesus can grab it, he's going, no, 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 no. Please keep your hands at 10 and 2. Because if you take your hands off the wheel, this thing's going to go into a ditch, and it's not God's fault. It's because you stopped driving it. Now, look, I, I think faith is great, I think it's important. I think it's vital. I don't think this is faith. I think this is checking out. I think this is abdicating your responsibility as a citizen of the world, as a human being on this planet. Now, I think it's totally different to say, um, hey, I, I, I need a map here. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. I'm not sure how to navigate this, and I'm not sure what the speed limit should be. There are all sorts of great questions you can ask, but the reality is when you take your hands off the wheel, you're giving up. And I think that that's what we see a lot of in the world right now. People, we have great challenges. Great. And I don't mean great like they're awesome. I mean they're huge. They're huge. And just this week, we had instances yesterday in Buffalo, this terrible example, this terrible instance of a white supremacist just killing people from not even his own community. He went somewhere to kill people of another race. And I promise you what our politicians will do is they'll thoughts and prayers that and they'll say there's really nothing we can do. We're going to try to take away all your other rights, but not this one. And so really all you can do is just pray about it. I, I think we can do more than pray about gun violence in our country. We can, we can do more than pray about climate change. We can do more than pray about the way women are continually being treated unequally in this country. We can do more than pray. Yesterday I was driving not far from my house and I drove past this intersection and there, I couldn't tell what it was at first, but there were these guys who were wearing like white shirts and black pants and they had a big banner unfurled. It was a big white banner with big black letters that said, white lives matter. And I had one of my kids with me who didn't see it and I told my wife when I got home, I'm so glad she was there. I was going to flip them off but I was afraid we would get in a fight and she was there. Because that was how much rage. I'm a nonviolent person, I didn't flip them off, wanted to desperately, don't act like you've never been there. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what if, I was thinking, what if a couple of my kids had been in the car and we drove by that? How would they have felt? I refuse to believe, by the way, they're all wearing masks too and it wasn't because of COVID, it was because of cowardice. They wanted to dispute our hate, but they didn't want to actually be held accountable for it. I think we can do more than just pray about white supremacy. I think in our own lives, in our own circles, we can begin to do things more than pray. We can begin to call stuff out. Like, will that be uncomfortable? Yeah, it might be uncomfortable. Will that make me lose a friend? If they're a racist, I think you're better off. But is there something we can do? Yes, we can act, we can march, we can support, we can, we can do the work 
of anti-racism. We can, there are things we can do in the world. We are not just these passive people on a, a, a ball of dirt spinning around in the universe. We are that, but we have action within our grasp. And I think the greatest act of faith is not bailing out, but it's grabbing the wheel and saying, okay, where are we going and what are we going to do when we get there? How can I show up and use every ounce of what I've been given, my body, my privilege, my resources, how can I use everything that I've been given to do justice in this world? I think that's what Jesus was up to. I think that's what Jesus was doing. And I think God's dream is not for a group of people who would just say, well, nothing we can do. I think God's dream is for people who go, okay, we're going to take this seriously and things are going to get awkward and they're going to be difficult and it's going to be a challenge. But we believe that another world isn't just possible, but it's already here if we have eyes to see it. That's the thing. It's already here. There, there are moments when we gather as a community, a Sunday morning on a reimagine during the week, and I have this just moment where I'm like, we're, we're in another world. There are people outside of here who think that too, but they mean it differently. <laughs> but we're in another world right now. This is not the world we go out to. And then we should be asking, why isn't it? And what are we going to do about that? Number three, I think, what if we saw our work as a community as creating a beta test? What if we were trying to create groups uh, uh, that beta tested what would it look like to live in a just and equitable world? Uh, what if we were doing that? What are we, let, let's, let's see if this works. Let's, let's see if it works when we treat everybody with equality and equity, how the world might be different. I, I think the reason so many people are walking away from the church hurt is because they go into the church expecting to be a part of a beta test of another world. And what they go in and find is that the same world of greed and capitalism and power and inequality has taken root in the church and it's running people out and people are going, you don't have enough faith, you don't love God enough. Actually, they're running to God because you sure aren't gonna find her in church in lots and lots of contexts. But what if we saw our community, our job is to just seek to live together in such a way that if the whole world did it, the world would be a just, equitable, and beautiful place. And so I think if, if Jesus were offering the invitation, he wouldn't say, let go and let God. I think the invitation would be this, don't wait on the world to change, change the world. D don't wait on the world. The world will not change on its own. Greed will never give up greed on its own. And what we found out through human history is actually violence doesn't work either because it has no capacity to change the human heart. Which makes the Jesus story all the more compelling for me. A human being who chooses not the path of violence but the path of nonviolent compassion, generosity, and goodness. Y'all, it's not going to happen overnight, is it? It's not going to happen overnight. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and he said he, he just had a, a, a baby, had just been born. And he said, you know, you hope your kids come into a better world, and they have a better world than you grew up with, and I think we're going backwards. Like, yeah, I think so. So what do we do? Just let go and let God. Look where that's gotten us. When God's saying, put your hands, 10 and 2, let's do this.
Grace Point, we have been given an invitation not to bail out, not to check out, but to engage. And may the fact that we gather today, may it impact the world around us every other day. Are you with me? Let's pray.